The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Take your Bibles, if you would, again, open them with me the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to continue in just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I hope you enjoyed your afternoon. I spent a little bit of time meditating, also known as taking a nap. And so that refreshes me sometimes. But as you well know, if you ever get woke up in the middle of a nap, uh, things can go the other way. So I kind of had a mix of both. Uh, but it was good enough. i am certainly been resupplied, and hopefully you have as well. This morning we began a discussion basically, and I don't know if I gave you a title, if you will, for this, but we were talking about the transforming power of Jesus. And we used as a springboard for our discussion this morning Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And therein Paul writes by inspiration to be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I told you this morning, I think in passing, that as I've been kind of studying on my own the last few months, uh, oftentimes I'll take my Bible and pick it up and I'll read a text like that one that is extremely familiar to all of us and I'll begin to ask questions basically like, why is this? And how is this possible? And so when you think about being transformed or changed, is another way of saying that, by the renewing of your mind, how can we see a biblical picture of such? You know, as I may have told you this morning, I believe and know for sure actually that this word right here, the Bible, is God's inspired commentary on itself. And all the time, if you'll, th- if you'll thumb and flip and flop a little bit, you'll generally find a biblical illustration or a picture of what it is that God wants us to know and do. And that's the case with the transformation or the changing of our mind. And I think I asked you this morning the question, I tried to ask myself the same one over and over again, but that is, has the gospel of Christ, has Jesus, has God actually changed me? Has he actually changed me? And that's what he, of course, had done for the Apostle Paul. And so this morning when we started out that discussion, we spoke about a few different things. I went ahead and gave you the main headings of each of those. But first of all, we named the fact, at least in what we talked about already, we named the fact that the Apostle Paul was changed by our Lord from sinner to saint. And as we began that discussion, I told you there'd be several subheadings to that. And the only one we actually got to this morning was concerning the power of God. And that is the Apostle Paul said, I'll read it again here in verse number 12, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath, and the key phrase here was, enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And we talked in detail about what it means to be enabled of God. That is to be given the strength. That's the parallel passage to that word at least. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, to be given the strength, to be given the power, literally. That at dunamo is the Greek word that backs this up, that basically says, because of God and only because of God, we have the power to do anything. And I may have mentioned this morning as well, in passing, Jesus is speaking to his disciples when he said, without me, and you can assume he was pointing directly at himself, that's who he spoke of. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. And so without God, we cannot. And the Apostle Paul realizes that. And as he's recounting that 
to what he called his son in the faith, 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning, uh, when he talks about that to Timothy, he says it is God who has enabled me to do that. And then from that point, we even subheaded that, meaning the power of God, to talk about the types of power that God offers us, all of which were listed here in the text, and inclusive of the fact that he gives us his mercy. We saw that there from verse number uh, 13. Uh, also, he offers to us his grace, verse 14. He offers to us his faith in us, albeit we have faith in God, and it ought to be a strong, continued Steadfast faith, but he has faith in us. That is, he has confidence in us that we can be saved. And then finally, we close this morning by talking about the next phrase there in verse 14. And that is, he offers to us also his love. So if you want to call it that, these are the four pillars upon which the power of God is expelled in us. And that's the way we are enabled by God in order that we might know him. So it's those four things, the mercy, the grace, uh, the um, whatever I just said right there, and also the love, the faith and the love. And that's what is seen in this. And that's the first thing. Second to this, and I want you to just look at the text. We'll reread re -read a portion of it, beginning in verse 11. Paul said, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed into my trust, I thank Jesus, or Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted, look at that phrase, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So not only is this made possible, that is to go from sinner to saint because of the power of God, it's also made possible because the petition of God. And I use the word petition kind of as a memory tool, something in place of that phrase, he had counted me to be faithful. You know, if you look around yourself, and even look in the mirror for that case, a lot of times you can see your faults. You can see your infirmities. You can see those areas where you find yourself being weak, where you find yourself failing and such. And God looks down and sees the same things. As a matter of fact, God sees obviously more in us than we are willing to see of ourselves. But as he looks down, he looks at us through different eyes. Particularly for the child of God, when we have allowed the blood of Jesus to wash us through obedience, particularly through that latter step of that obedience, that is to be washed in the blood of Christ in baptism, now God sees us through those eyes in which He looks at us and says, Okay, you may live this life as a failure, you may have these shortfalls, these, these problems, these issues, but in my mind, as you continue to walk in the line and remain faithful, I count you but faithful. And as a matter of fact, God, <clears throat> through inspiration, allows Paul to say particularly, and we'll expand on this later, particularly he allows him to say right here, he has counted me so faithful that he has put me in the ministry. That is, he has allowed me to be a servant of his. And we think about that and we step back, at least I do, on the, on the surface of that, and I say, well, by him saying he's put him in the ministry, we know exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about being a missionary. Paul is talking about being a preacher. Paul is talking about being a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. And, and yes, that's true to an extent. But even beyond that, Paul is allowed to be in that ministry, allowed to preach that gospel, allowed to live that life, first and foremost, because God has counted him for that. 
Now, I want to just delve into, just for, for a moment or two, a little bit farther in that, into that phrase, and, and you may have a different translation. King James speak was to counted or accounted him to be faithful. The word counted here means just what it sounds like on the surface, and that is he has looked at us and he has said, okay, you may consider yourself to be a one in ten, but I see you as a ten out of ten. That's just kind of a, a weird way, but a practical way of explaining that. But also the word counted here literally means to be led toward a goal. And so what God has done, again, backing up the page through his power, his enablement, that is made possible by his mercy, his grace, his faith, and his love, is that he has now petitioned on our behalf and he's led us toward being more like his son. And you and I realize as Bible students, every single time we sit down, if we're focused on such and we're intensive in such, we sit down and we thumb through these pages and we read these words and we take in this information and most importantly, we make application of the information to our lives. God is doing just that. He's drawing us to be more like His Son. And so the Apostle Paul lists that basically when he speaks to Timothy, again, his son in the faith, and says, and I quote it again, and I thank Jesus, verse 12, Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, and for he hath counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. And so it's interesting the way this bears out, but oftentimes we think about someone being in the ministry again in that most... Uh, most legalistic sense and we say well that that implies that he's a minister that's just the word there it implies that he's a preacher it implies that he's a missionary and we say well in most local congregations that points to to one man or maybe just a couple of different men somebody may have a pulpit minister and a family minister and all these ministers here's the truth a congregation of the lord's people is not led by a minister as much as he ought to be led by the ministers that exist in it. And those ministers are those which look in the mirror and see Jesus in themselves. And that's every single person. In that case, that non-legal sense of the word, minister, simply means no more than one who serves and one who serves the mighty God. And that can be male, that can be female, that can be young, and that can be old. Not holding that pulpit spot always, but in the sense that we minister and we serve the Almighty God above and even more importantly in the localized congregation, we serve one another. And maybe that's why the Apostle Paul, and we mentioned this this morning in passing, the Apostle Paul spoke of the fact that he knew that God, remember this, would perform that good work until the end and that he would be able to do that as much as he wills. And so Paul here lists specifically that God has put me in the ministry. So in one sense, being in the ministry, and I'm putting the quotes around it that, for that understanding of it, you and I don't get a choice. We don't, we're not offered a choice. You can't say, well, I want to be obedient to God, so I'll do what, what the Bible reveals, and I'll hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, and then in and at that point, I'll step back and I'll accept the salvation God offers. No, 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 not unless you accept also the service or the call to be a servant that God requires. So that's the second place right there. Not only the power brought him from sinner to saint, but also the petition 
in that. And then look down the page just a little bit more. Keep up the reading in verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Who was before, Paul's talking of himself obviously, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and of unbelief. And so look at what he, he states about himself. He names these things off. Number one, he said, I once was a blasphemer. We'll mention more about that. Number two, he says, in addition to that, I once was a persecutor. Absolutely true about him. When we started talking about him this morning, we mentioned the latter part of Acts chapter 7 and exactly what he had, according to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, he had consented to the death. That is, he had given the authority, he had given the go-ahead, he had given the okay, and he would certainly not done anything to stop the murdering of Stephen. So he had been a persecutor. But he also says, I also was an injurious person. Meaning, I am someone who has done harm. I've done intense harm. I've done damage to the people of God. Now that is what we spoke about from Acts chapter 9 and the meeting there of Saul at that point, later called Paul, on the road to Damascus when he spoke to Jesus and asked that very logical question at that point, you're laying on your face, you're blind, who art thou, Lord? And then Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, or asked that question, why the persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's that point, in essence, then, when we have the Apostle Paul there, literally there on his knees, if not on his face, and he's being seen in the light of God in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, he's being brought to the light. He's coming to light. And so this carries with it the potential. So why, did he, why was he able to go from sinner to saint? Number one, because of the power. Number two, because of the petition. You have counted me as one who's worthy. And number three, because of his potential. You see, again, oftentimes, and I mentioned this morning for illustration, oftentimes we'll look in the mirror at ourselves and we'll say, you know what, I'm just not good enough for God. The way I live or the way I do or the things I've gotten involved in or the failures that I have, I'm just not good enough for God. And then we'll more times point the finger at others that are around us, particularly those in the world, and say, well, you know, they're, they're not going to live. To the standard of God. They're never going to make it. They're never going to obey. They're never going to want to follow. They're never going to want to do what God has required of us to do. And we'll make that accusation. But you see, the world in us and us in our minds, we always have the ability to see the way we see. It's impossible, however, save it through this book and an understanding of it, to see what God sees. So each of those words, let's just take a brief moment to talk about them. Verse 13, he said, who was before a blasphemer? What does it mean to blaspheme someone? Well, the literal term here means one who speaks against. That is literally one who stands up in a sense and speaks against God. That is, he speaks evil against God. Again, Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul thought that his persecuting of Christians was simply that. He thought that he was simply standing up to a sect, that's what he might have called them, but to a sect or an elite group of people who had come out of the Jewish faith and were now calling themselves Christians or Christians, that is, those who followed after Christ. And to him, that made very little sense. And he spoke evil against them. 
So he was an evil speaker who turned to a gospel preacher. See, that's the transformation that takes place here. He went from being a blasphemer, one who speaks against, to one who speaks in favor of. And that ought to be that just on the surface of that. That ought to be a part of the transformation of our lives. You know, you may say to yourself, and I could, I could say this to an extent, you know, well, I've never done anything purposefully or intentionally to harm God. Even when I wasn't living for Him, I wasn't necessarily living against Him. The mindset is logical. The mindset of that makes sense until we consider, and there are several passages, but the one that always comes to my mind, what Jesus said in Matthew, as recorded in Matthew 12 and verse 30, which the paraphrase of such is either you're either with me or you're against me. You say, I could say, well, I've never been against God. Uh, when I'm not with God, I'm in essence against Him. And God saw a different potential. God saw an evil speaker, a blasphemy, blasphemer. And he turned him and allowed him to become that gospel preacher, that giant of a man that he was, again, enabled by his power. So that's the first level of that. The second phrase he uses about himself, who, verse 13, was before a blasphemer and a persecutor. A persecutor. What is the literal word for persecution means? Well, it's twofold. It means one of two things and probably both. It either means to put pressure on. That is to press down on. I don't know if you've ever uh, had any, any time in your life when you feel like, and they may physically do this for in some cases, but you just feel like that someone is holding you down, that's holding you back, that's stifling your energy. This is caking everything in you that you want to be positive, and they're just kind of pushing that over and holding that back. That's one sense of the word. A secondary sense of the word for persecution literally means, and this is the word I'm going to, the phrase I'm going to use for it, it means to hem in. You ever had an animal or something that, that you've had to put in a cage or put inside of a fence because you didn't want them getting out and getting hurt? Or you didn't want them getting out and doing harm to someone or some other piece of property or some other animal. So you take that dog, you take that cow, or you take that whatever, and you put them inside of a pen, you put them in a fence, and you do your best to do what? To hem them in. We've got three dogs at home right now. All of them live outside. The biggest one, the medium-sized one, the little itty-bitty one. At some point, and we've raised all them from, I guess you'd say, newborn practically. Uh, even the oldest one now, who's about that tall, we put him in a pen. When he was young, if we left the house, we put him in a pen, and that worked for him for about eh, maybe 25 or 30 minutes. And he found a way to get out. He'd go over, he'd go over, or under and over. He'd go around. He'd go inside. He'd go out. And so we took and we took some tin and did the same thing with this last one just a few months ago. Took some tin and put it over the pen, laid that on top of it, and took some heavy objects and put that on top of that. Well, all he had to do, he finally figured out, if I can get my nose out one corner, I can squeeze right over the top and peel right out. You know what we finally did? He said, you can't hem him in. You can't hold him back. I said all that to illustrate very practically what the word persecution meant and how it applied to the life of the Apostle Paul. 
Paul's instinct when he first hears about the gospel of Christ is that that's, that's foreign to what I've known. That's foreign to my history, to my past, to my lineage, to my heritage. It doesn't make sense to me about this Messiah called Jesus who came to this earth, who lived and died and resurrected and ascended into heaven to save me or anyone else from my sin. That makes no sense. That's not the way we've served God in the past. And perhaps it's not the way I ought to serve God in the present. So he intensively then tried, and he says this in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3. I mentioned this morning his pedigree. He said, concerning zeal... I don't know what he said because I just lost it. But you can look that one up. I'll turn over there. Hand, just turn over there. We don't want to leave you like that. Go to Philemon. It'll be so easy. Philippians. By the time I get there, it'll make good sense, maybe. I know exactly where it is on the page. He, he starts with this in verse 6. Concerning zeal. That's what I was trying to think. It would have been so easy if you just spoke up. Concerning zeal. Look at it. Persecuting the church. Paul, how much energy did you put into this thing? He said, as zealous as I was. And the word zeal means uh, uh, pent up or, or trapped in heat. Uh, what made me, what fired me up, what set me on fire was the opportunity to persecute the church. And so what he wanted to do then in this illustration, back over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, through the word persecutor, he wanted to take all those Christians and just hem them in. His intent was to make sure that this gospel, which he did not understand and maybe at that point did not want to accept, that they did not allow that to spread. So he pinned them up, he hemmed them up. But the thing is, and this is the way I kind of state this, he went from hemming them in to hemming them up. And that's a different illustration that's far from it, but it sounded good at the time at 1 o'clock in the morning. And that is, like a pair of pants, when the hem comes out, it needs repair. And so what Paul does from that point, from the time he meets with Christ on the road to Damascus until the time that he goes into the city of Damascus, he meets with Ananias, Ananias completes the instructions given to him to arise and be baptized and have his sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. From that day forward in my mind, he continued on that trail, not to him in, but to him up, to repair all the wrongs he had done. So why are you zealous now, Paul? Uh, what we read a moment ago in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, he was concerning zeal, persecuted the church, now concerning zeal, preaching the gospel. So he went from hemming the Christians in to doing his best to hem them up or make repair of what he had. And then the third word that is used here, he says not only verse 13, a blasphemer, a persecutor, but then he says an injurious, I obtained mercy. What does it mean to be injurious? I looked this word up in several different little tools that I have. Most of them are digital. A lot of them are book form copies you pull off the shelf. Uh, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, that sort of thing. Nearly every one of them said the same thing about the word injurious. And it concerned violence. You know, sometimes in life you can get injured in, in different ways. You can stumble, you can fall, you can bump against something, you can scrape. You know, a lot of ways that we can be injured ourselves. But this does not involve something that is accidental 
are coincidental, but always intentional. Paul's saying here, at one point, I did what I could to hurt people. Now, let's go to a passage. I don't flip or flop very much, but let's go to a passage, actually, that mentions that or makes mentions of that. Go to Acts chapter 8. I've mentioned already in passing so many times, Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, 22, and 26. But in Acts chapter 8 specifically, Acts chapter 8, look down the page there to verse 3. So just barely into the chapter, Acts chapter 8. We'll read in verse 1, though, because we mentioned this a moment ago. Saul consenting unto the death, speaking of that of Stephen, Saul consenting unto the death, verse 1, Acts 8, at the time there was a great persecution same context here. There was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and except the apostles. A devout man, or devout men, carried Stephen for the burial, and a great lamentation over him. For Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women and committed them to prison. So that's just another one of those verses that tells us between the context of Acts 7 and verse 9 that Paul intentionally did what he knew to do to hurt people, to intensively ruin their lives. I don't know what the real statistics are, but I know it's a very high statistic and and just my study and recollection of, of information I've gathered before, if and when someone went into a Roman prison, the odds of them surviving that imprisonment were somewhere in the neighborhood of 60-some-odd percent. You say, well, that's a little bit above 50. Yeah, it's a little bit above 50, but it's a whole lot below 100. It's not that good. You say, well, that's because they lived, you know, they had to live their lives out in prison. No, they were actually pretty good about taking them on to court, probably much better than we are in the United States, about giving them an expedient trial, about getting, you know, their jury, their judgment or such laying on them. But the problem was those prisons were so infested and so dangerous and the treatment there was so cruel that a lot of people simply died before they ever went to trial before they ever met with a judgment. And so what Paul's saying here then, in, in essence, or at least God's recording of Paul, is that he committed folks to prison. Not unlike Stephen, who he allowed to be stoned and put to death right before his face. But committing someone to prison was in essence often, 60 some odd percent of the time, a death sentence. He was injurious. But you see, that is what men saw. That is what Saul become Paul, saw of himself. And that's what he records. Thanks be to God, he says it. He said, I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an injurious person. But he's not talking about the present. He's talking about a sense in which that's what he was, but also not what he is. So look at this. Look at the page here. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 13. He just named those things off, and then he says this, But I obtained mercy because I did it out of ignorance and unbelief. 
ignorantly in unbelief. Now, I've looked at that many times, and I'll be honest with you, and I told you this morning when we read through the, the whole of the text, I've looked at that many times, and I, I assume without intention missed what I think is one of the most important words in the verse, and if, and if, if you can see that, it's about that big in my copy. About that big. The word I in. Because what I like to think about was, you know, Paul, he, he kind of got off the hook because he was ignorant. I mean, he says it there, uh, ignorantly and unbelief. So he was ignorant. He didn't know any better. And you know, a lot of the world, whether they would say it, a lot of the church for that matter, whether we would say it, we want to stand before God one day, and the only card we've got to pull out of our pocket is, well, I didn't know any better, God. You know, don't, don't blame me for that, because I didn't know. Well, the issue with that is we had opportunity to know. We have the inspired, revealed Word of God recorded for us and thankfully translated in languages. Most all languages around the world have that as well, but we especially do. Numerous translations, if you will, numerous copies, numerous interpretations of the Bible, any which way we desire, we can know the will of God. But you see, what I've continued to miss about it, I guess, is that he said I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So I don't think the emphasis is on the fact that Paul was ignorant. Uh, Paul wasn't a, an ignorant individual. Paul, according to the record, was highly educated, according again to Philippians chapter uh, 3, had every opportunity in life from, from birth on. He was born with a literal, seemingly silver spoon in his mouth raised up among all of these people, a Hebrew of Hebrews, out of the tribe of Benjamin, concerning zeal, persecuting, all these things he names off there. Paul had opportunity. Paul was not ignorant. Paul just simply didn't believe. So his unbelief was his ignorance. Now think about that. His unbelief was his ignorance. It wasn't the fact that he was ignorant about anything of God. It wasn't the fact that he would ever stand in judgment like some of us may hope we would. Or the world, <laughs> probably their only opportunity would be to say, I didn't know any better. I never learned any better. No. He was ignorant in that he said, I, I didn't believe it. As many times as the Apostle Paul had heard the gospel from the time through which the church was established as recorded in Acts chapter 2, and the time when finally he became obedient to such as recorded in Acts chapter 9. Now, we don't know the detail of that until chapter 22, but in chapter 9, the apostle Paul had not been willing to believe. And the thankful thing or the appreciative thing I know about such is the way that God sees us and the way that men see us are two different things. So that is in essence what allowed Paul to go from sinner to saint. It was the power of God. It was a petition of God. And it was the potential that God gave him. That's pretty good. Number next, finally. We've taken all these hours now, almost two, to get through point one. Finally, point two. Not only was he taken from sinner to saint, but the scripture shows us pretty clearly here that he went from what I call this morning a show man and became a showpiece. Look at it. We're, we'll pick up the reading there in verse 13 and get to it. It says, 
who before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came of the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How is that, Paul? Verse 16. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth, I've got that underlined right here, might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern. I've got a box around pattern. If I've ever told you before, if I put a box around something to me, it is the word of the verse. Of a pattern to them which stood hereafter, and believe on him to everlasting life. So we've got Paul who, who, here who once was, was a showman. Maybe a better word would be for us to understand that he's a showboat. All he wanted to do was walk into a room or walk into a crowd as many of the Pharisees did. Again, he claimed to be of such, or at least of the level of such, to walk into a room and command that attention and allow people to listen and to do what he said. But what God decides to do is to use Paul as a pattern or if you will as an example or as a showpiece for us to see just how long-suffering he is. Now I don't know if, 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 if you would agree with this. Uh, I don't really, let me restate that. I don't know how you could disagree with this. I had a lady one time, it's been... Uh, almost 15 years ago, uh, I was taking kind of some Bible questions and covering them on Wednesday night. And her question, I'm not making fun of her at all, but her question was, was Paul actually a blasphemer? Uh, yeah. Well, he said he was, but was he? Uh, God inspired him to say it. Yes, he was. Yes, he spoke against God. And yes, he was completely against God from that evil speaking to that gospel preaching. Yes, he was at one point. The Bible states that clearly about him. And, and then the conclusion of that and that discussion continued on the fact that, well, you know, how and why and for what reason was Paul saved? So he could be the, here's a word we use in Munford, the back opposite of such. So that anyone and everybody could stand back and say, you know, Paul was a bad man. Mm -hmm. Paul was an evil man, yes. Paul was, as he described, a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was injurious, yes. And Paul even said about himself, which again, biblically inspired, biblically true, I was of the chief of sinners. Again, to reread that verse back up the page, he said, this is a faithful saying, verse 15. And worthy of, I got this word circled, that's a little bit less than a box. Worthy of all acceptation. I mean, you better just swallow this pill, it's true. That Christ came into this world to save sinners, I've got this bracketed, of whom I am chief. Is Paul the chief of sinners? God said he was. God allowed him to pen in inspiration that he was. Is he the biggest enemy that God has ever known? I don't know how God interprets that. I, I, I don't know what God would say about such. I know that it wouldn't be very hard to do some of the things that Paul did and end up in the same category. 
or the same place that Paul was. But here the Apostle Paul allows God and God allows him then the opportunity to not only be a demonstration of what saving salvation looks like, to not only come from sinner unto saint, but to come from a showman to become a showpiece. And he says, I have been made the example. King James speak, I have been set for a pattern of the long-suffering, verse 16b, of the long-suffering of God, which, last phrase of 16, should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. So what's happened, Paul? Paul said the declaration of God, when He counted me just up the page as faithful, when He put me into the ministry just up the page, God's declaration concerning me allowed me to be, through God, a demonstration of what it means to go from point A to B, from sinner to saint, and in this case, to illustrate it from show man to show peace. I want to ask you to turn, we'll turn one more time right here, maybe, maybe one more, maybe three or four more. Go with the book of Ephesians for just a moment, so go back to your left a little bit. You've seen this passage. We mentioned this passage in passing this morning. I bet we didn't turn to it. But go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me, if you would, beginning in about verse 8. You're very familiar with this. For by grace you're saved. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And most of the quote-unquote religious world cuts off right there. That's the end of that. You know, by grace you're saved through faith. Just accept the grace of Jesus and have faith on that. Look at verse 10. Continuing on the reading there. For we are His... Now this one is underlined and highlighted. Pretty important word in the verse in my opinion. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is, is where I'm getting my word for illustration and memory's sake. Show peace. The word there, workmanship, comes from a Greek word, which is where we get our English word for poem. A piece of art. Someone who has talent. They might be a painter. They might be a sculptor. They might be a poet. There's some type of artist. Paul said here in Ephesians, same penman, uh, same inspired God to write it. Paul said, we are his poetry. We are his piece of work. And then in our context, he says, he's using me as a pattern to show forth the long-suffering of God. So he went from sinner to saint. He went from showman to showpiece. And then lastly here, he went from being a silencer of God to a servant of such. He was once a silencer of God and then became a servant. Backing up in verse 12, and I have to get back to 1 Timothy to do it myself. Backing up in verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me 
in the ministry. Again, I expressed this a little earlier. The word ministry, same as the idea of the word minister, means nothing more than a servant. Paul spent all of his beginning portion of his life going around trying to hem up, trying to silence God, trying to hold down God's people, particularly Jesus himself, trying to stand against Jesus to do away with his influence. Not that he was there, but he's in the same group of people who would cry out to have him crucified. He was in the same sect of people on his side of things, of the Jewish hierarchies, that did everything they could and ultimately accomplished it, so they thought, to have God, the Son of God, Christ, murdered. He went from a silencer to a servant. How does he do that, and how does he desire that we do it? Well, you can read it right here to some extent. He goes on. I'm picking up now in verse 16. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in first Jesus Christ might show forth the longsuffering and the pattern of them which should be hereafter to believe on them in everlasting life. Verse 17. Now unto thee, King. And here's how he describes King Jesus. Unto thee, King, eternal immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Now, if you'll notice, Paul was definitely a preacher because after he says amen, he, he goes on talking, right? Verse 18. This I charge, I commend in thee, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies which were before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. How do you do that, Timothy? Verse 19. Holding forth in a good conscience, some having put away concerning the faith, having made shipwreck, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexandria, whom I delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does he want? What is the call? The call right here of the Apostle Paul. When he goes from being a silencer to being a servant, what is his call? To Timothy, and specifically, he says, you are to fight a good warfare. Timothy, you've got to go to battle. You've got to stand up. You've got to take hold of the love of Christ that you have and the love that he has for you and the gospel that he brought and made possible. And you've got to make sure the world knows about it. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I hope you'll read this on your own time, especially the first, well, read, there's 26 verses, I believe. 2 Timothy, same penman, same recipient, just second book. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives a pattern or a call to which how the gospel is spread. And in verse 2, he clarifies it in simple terms to say that you may teach others that they may teach others also. And then he goes through a list, and there's actually seven of those in the rest of the text. The first three stand out very prominently of ways in which one is to teach and how hard-nosed, for our terms, one has to be to continue to carry that gospel. And he says it in three ways. Number one, he says that person must have the dedication of a soldier. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Second to that, but not lesser than that, he says he must have the discipline of an athlete. That's verse 5. And then finally he says he must have the dedication 
of a farmer. And then he lists out several more throughout the text. That's the first three, verses 1 through 6, 2 Timothy 2. That's the call. But what is the conclusion of this? Paul wrote not one book as we understand it, not one letter, but two to Timothy. And this one being one of encouragement to have courage. And sometimes it takes courage to encourage. But he stands up and he encourages Timothy. Timothy, stand up. Timothy, do right. Timothy, love men. Timothy, preach the gospel. Timothy, don't be put away. Don't be put down. Don't give up. Don't give out. And don't give away. To coming to that second letter, whereas you're mindful of the way that he starts to close it, and this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If not, my favorite passage in the whole New Testament, it is very close. Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered. The time that is literally the age of my departure is at hand. For I've fought a good fight. That's one of those ways. I've finished my course. That's yet another. And I've kept, K-E-P-T, the faith. Then he adds there in verse 10, Henceforth is laying up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me, but not unto me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. You say, Jim, why do you chain that together? I chain that together because as we've seen in all of these results, all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the apostle Paul was inspired to write those words. And then to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 through 18, he reveals unto him how those things are accomplished. How are you transformed? How was I changed? Paul would answer. And then he writes that conclusion to Timothy later in that last book that he would probably pen to any man in the closing days of his life. And he basically reports, I have been successful. Not of myself. I've been brought from sinner to saint. I've been brought from being a showman to a showpiece. And I've been brought from silencing the word of God to in turn doing nothing but serving the God of heaven and carrying that gospel as far and wide as I can. That's a successful Paul. Is that any different than us? No. All of us. Every one of us. Each and every one of us, which I was taught in school, don't ever say that, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing, but it emphasizes. Each and every one of us should know that Jesus has the power to change us. But not just us. To all them, quoting Paul, who love his appearing. If you're here this evening and you're not a child of God's, we want to invite you. There'll be a song of invitation uh, led for, for, to assist you in making your decision in just a moment. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you can put on Christ. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was required to do. None of these transformative actions, none of these changes occur in Paul's life outside of obedience to the gospel of Christ. None of them. Did Christ love him? Yes. Did he love Christ ultimately in the end? Absolutely. But his life was not changed without obedience. And it was in that place... And in that period in his life, when Paul began to live the life, the same life that we have opportunity to live, where at times we have to come back again and again. 
where at times we have to continually walk in the light, remain faithful, continue to trust, and continue to be in fellowship with God. And you're more than likely, as I am, I think most of you are just in what I know of you, we're all in that position. We're in that place. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, the invitation is open to you. If you are, and you could be like the Apostle Paul, you could be like myself, you could be like you, in need of the transforming power of Jesus to allow God to change us. Tonight is your opportunity. While together we stand and sing this invitation song.